Because the psalmist is saying another thing. He's saying that, you know, when you begin to praise him, when you begin to praise him, you realize that we cannot declare all his praises. There's so much. And that's the experience he's drawing us to. And so that's why I want us to, to keep coming back to that. Who can declare all his praise? So let me give you a little context about the psalm as we proceed, all right? So this is a historical psalm. That is, it's telling you the history of the children of Israel. There are five such psalms that are there, okay? And, and, and then when you read the psalm, let's read 47. Verse 47, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. It seems like the psalmist is not in a good place. It seems like he's speaking from a place of exile. He's outside and he wants to be gathered back. And therefore, verse 4 and 5, which is, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, and then he goes on, and then he, conf- and he begins his confession in verse 6. All right? So, so the, in verse 6, when he says, both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, what the psalmist is not doing is he's not listing his own specific sins that he has done apart from what the children of Israel had done before. And what he's saying in principle is this. Listen, I, we didn't actually do the same sins necessarily, but in principle, we're not too far away. The apple has not fallen too far from the tree. And that's the, um, that's a picture that we get. But, so the, but the theme of the psalm is praise. Not wallowing in our unfaithfulness but resulting in praise. And the principle is that God alone is worthy of praise. He alone is worthy of praise. And so we say, who can declare all his praise? So when you read the psalm, the other thing that comes to your mind is that what happens if there's an absence of prayer, uh, absence of praise, sorry. Absence of praise, what does that result in? And as he recounts the history we begin to see 26 ways that the psalmist recounts what happened, what, what the children of Israel did in forgetting the faithfulness of God. And um, I see this as an example of the situation in hell. You know why? Because in, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, this is what Paul writes. He says, And they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. What Paul is saying is that there is going to be a place called hell. There is a place called hell where there is no praise of joy to him. And in some sense, if we're not able to praise, listen, we need to figure out what place we are in. So our options are clear. We cannot but praise the Lord. We cannot but praise the Lord. And so, again, we see, as we begin to praise, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? So, the way the psalm can be broken down is verse 1 to verse 5. I want to call it the request. Or I'll, I'll, let me call it the, uh, the ask. And then verse 6 to 46, I want to call it the acknowledgement. 
And then verse 47 to 48, I'll call it the assurance. So three parts to the psalm, and we'll quickly look at that and to take away, uh, you know, what is it that the Spirit of God wants us to learn from this, all right? So the, 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 before we get into those two parts, the first question I want to ask is, why should we praise the Lord? And the psalmist gives two reasons. He gives two reasons in verse 1. First, he says, for he is good. He is good. That's his attribute, who he is. That's one reason to praise the Lord. And the second one, he says, his steadfast love endures forever for what he does. Not just what he is, but also what he does, the fact that his steadfast love endures forever. The two reasons that we can, we can praise him. And our response, therefore, is, you know, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? His steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love endures forever. I'm not sure if you paused enough to think about what that means. There are two phrases there, two words there, steadfast and endures. You know, when when I think about steadfast, this is the picture that I I get. It's not flickering. It's not circumstantial. It's not mood dependent. It is a bold line just goes right across. It's steadfast. Irrespective of your circumstance, your situation, your response, it's steadfast. The steadfast love. And it's not just that it's bold and consistent without flickering and without wavering, but it endures forever. It just hits the ball out of the park. It's a bold line that goes right across and to eternity. Not dependent on us. And the psalmist realizes this as he reminds himself of the sins of, of the, his fathers, the children of Israel. He is thankful for the steadfast love of God that endures forever. And that's what gives him the assurance, doesn't it? Because when he starts to pray in verse 4, he says, Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. I just love it. He doesn't say, if you show favor to, the, to your people. My confidence in the Lord is this, that because his steadfast love endures forever, I can say, when, Lord, when? When you show favor. And I, I see that, and I see that there is a principle there, principle that even during lament, even the time where your circumstance is at the worst, the one thing that we can do is praise the Lord. Now think about Jeremiah. You know, when you talk about the steadfast love of the Lord and just forever, you start to think about the verse that we often sing, right? And it comes from Lamentations chapter 3, 22, 23. The steadfast love of the Lord and just... This is what I think, all right? Now, Jeremiah is a weeping prophet. Like, he was so broken by the sins of the people that he's constantly crying and weeping. He's called the weeping prophet. And he's writing this lament. And he gets to this point, and he... uh, I think he just gets up and starts to dance because he realizes that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Now, I don't know what tune he would have sung, whether he uses the same tune that we sang, but, you know, how does that go? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We sing it so often. I hope we recognize that it's not of us that we've been loved this way. 
And so he says, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Somebody made reference to the, the thief on the cross. It, it gives us the same picture, isn't it? Because what the thief and also the psalmist is saying, that in the Lord there is favor. In the Lord there is a future. Remember me, Lord. It's in you remembering me. Because of your steadfast love that endures forever, that I can, I can um, take joy, have this confidence, have this hope. And so in verse 5, he makes three requests. He says that I may see the good times, that I may rejoice in gladness, and that I might join in the glorying, the good times, the gladness, and the glorying. And he is confident that a good time is coming in the Lord, in the Lord. It's his steadfast love. So then when you go to the main part, the, the second part, which is the acknowledgement, he, what Psalmist has done is he's already seen the goodness of the Lord. And so as he begins to recount, as he sees how unfaithful he and his fathers have been, his basis is not the sin that he remembers, but in the steadfastness of the love of God. Right? But I, I want you to notice the two things that happen. One is the change in pronoun, verse 7 and verse 8. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not con consider your, uh, your wondrous, father, uh, wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea and the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake. I want you to notice that there's a change in the pronoun from the second person pronoun to the third person pronoun. He, we already saw that the psalmist is not talking about his own sins, but what the psalmist does here is that he recognizes that his sin, the sins of his father are same in principle, and yet he starts to say that I want to separate myself from that sin. And in essence, that is what repentance is. The repentance is you abhor the sin and you want that separation from that sin which God alone can save you from. We were talking recently about amnesty. You see, the uh, amnesty is a big thing that's happening in the U.S. and, you know, in some other countries. And uh, the thing with amnesty is this. God is not in the amnesty business. The thing with amnesty is this. If you, there's something wrong with you, the chief executive officer of the nation is going to say, all right, I think I'm going to give them an amnesty. So it doesn't matter if you're repentant or not. It doesn't matter whether you felt remorse at, at what you did or, you know, your situation. You just get amnesty. And God is not in the amnesty business. He is, in the, he is that we would be repentant, confessing our sins, and come to him. And so... That's the first thing. But I want you all to notice in verse 8 where he says he saved them for his namesake. I think about this. Nothing is just counterintuitive. Because if there's something, you know, messy like this, something that is wrong, we don't want to get involved. I don't want to get my name involved. I don't want to malign my name. That's what we use. That's the phrase we use. But God is saying that for his namesake, what we distance ourselves from when it's messy I'm just thankful to God for his covenantal love that he would 
that he would seek that it would be his name honor, the honor to his name, that he would save me, save you, save us. And so we say, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? When you have this list of 26, like I said, from exodus to exile, the story is, as it's been narrated, but 26 times, as I counted. And here are some of them. Verse 7, they did not consider. Yeah, the, the word used there is that they stood crossed hands and said, I'm not impressed. Verse 7 again, they rebelled. The word is mara. We know it's about bitterness. They were bitter. They did not wait for his counsel. Verse 13, verse 14, they desired and they lusted. They were, had a wanton craving in the wilderness. Verse 20, they exchanged his glory for that of a molten image. They despised in unbelief. Verse 28, they yoked and joined and fastened themselves to Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. Verse 37. Verse 39, they were unclean. Verse 43, they were rebellious in their own purposes. Do you, do you even get the sense of what's happening? And so I ask myself, what is common? If we were to say the psalmist is feeling that, you know, my sins are like the sins of my fathers, and then we are looking at that, and if we are honest in this, you know, the moments of honesty that we would have, we realize, you know, this, this is a true picture of us. Because uh, let me read to you a quote by Stephen J. Cole. He says, their example shows that it is possible to witness great miracles and to be the object of great mercies, which we are, and still to harden our hearts and forget God's abundant kindness when you encounter trials. It just takes a little bit. It just takes a spill to know what our cup is filled, filled with. They forgot I want us to notice that it, it comes up three times. The forgot appears three times. Okay? One is in verse 7. It says, they forgot the abundance of God's steadfast love. Verse 7. And then verse 13 and 14, it says, they forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They craved and tested God. And verse 21, it says, they forgot the Savior, exchanged the glory of God to a lowly beast. I'm not sure if you caught this, this progression of their forgetfulness. They forgot the nature of God, verse 7. They forgot his works in verse 13 and 14. And then eventually, verse 21, they forgot God. But I want you to understand, when they said they forgot God, it is not that they forgot God, that they, like, oh, I'm sorry, I have an amnesia. I don't know that there is a God, Jehovah, that exists. They replaced, they exchanged. That is what the word is. That we who are built for worship, we are built for worship. We always quote this, right? We say Pascal, who said that we all have a God vacuum in us. We are built for worship. And when we don't worship God, we are worshiping someone else. And as we read in this passage, what the children of Israel did, eventually we start worshiping the demon himself or the demons. 
we were talking uh, about a friend of ours who uh, who um, drove this Tesla car, you know, the self-drive mode. They went from Toronto to Boston. I- I'm just waiting for that car. I hate driving. I want to get out of the car, go to sleep, so wake up. I can get to that place. I'm good. I know Praveen's not very happy with it, but I am. Okay. So he gets to Boston. Now, I want you to think about this. If this technology had failed, that car would not start to fly. It would not start go sailing on the water. It worse come, it'll stop driving, it will go past Boston, but it cannot do what it was not built to do. It can only fail in its purpose. We who are built for our purposes, when we fail to worship God, we fail in the fact that we don't worship him, but we worship someone else. I want you to understand that. We don't recalibrate ourselves into something else. Worship we must, and worship we will. And as we think about the, uh, what the psalmist experiences, and has said, he's saying just this, that as he goes through all this, he realizes what a steadfast love of the Lord is. And then he says, who can declare all his praise? We can be so thankful. There's the other example where the angel in, uh, and the John, they have this, this conversation in Revelation chapter 22. John sees this great guy and you know, he just falls to worship him. And this is what he says, and he said to me, Thou sh- you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and prophets with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. The angel is saying this. Listen, this worship that you have cannot be given to anybody or anything else, not with something that you're impressed with or you're trying to impress. Might look like an angel and all of that, but worship God. Worship God. And so, as you uh, think about this, this is, the, um, this is what we have to remember. That we, we still make sacrifices. You know, we just went through that. They sacrificed their children to the altars. We sacrifice our children to the altars. Either we, because uh, for our careers, for our comfort, for our needs, or for their careers, or for their comfort, we sacrifice our children are the altars that, that this world has built or we have built. Uh, we were talking again, and this came like a sledgehammer to me. You know, when we apply for jobs, we write out those resumes. We're not able to say the good things about ourselves in, in two pages. You know, they'll tell you just two pages. No, 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 we got so much to say. I've got like four pages to say. We pad it up. We are the best there is for that job. Like, I want to tell you, there's nothing, nobody greater than me for that job. That's what a resume says. And yet you ask them to come and do something at work, at church, sorry. Suddenly, they have no skills, no competence unable to do anything. I think about this. You know, if, if God were to, if we were to stand before God on the judgment day with our resumes in our hand, 
You know why? Because we have sacrificed the, I want to call that the modern altars, the altars of this modern convenience. We have sacrificed so much. We have given so much to this world, which is temporal, here and gone, that we have nothing for God. We are tired. We always use an excuse saying, that, can you do this? No, I'm too tired. Or, hey, that's because we have sacrificed ourselves. The very best is already given. We bring scraps to God, and that too, perhaps, as a, as a favor. Now, hope to God, we wake up. Now, we can come together and say, who can declare his praises? Who can declare his praises? And so, we get to the assurance, which is verse 47 and verse 48. The confidence of the psalmist. You know, when the psalm ends, the psalmist is not delivered. He is still in exile if he is in exile. He is still in the situation. His circumstance has not changed. But he ends with a praise because now his eyes are not on the circumstance, on the situation, the storms that he might face, or the inconveniences that he's having, but his eyes have been, have been raised, has been moved, has been shifted. We see Jesus. And so the praise. And so the praise. So, have we repeated? We have repeated sins that dulls us from recognizing where we are, or we, we haven't realized where we are. Is that, is that it? Or we're rebelling? I want to close with two. Uh, two things. One is a definition that A.W. Tozer gives, and he says, true worship is an everlasting preoccupation with God. Uh, everlasting preoccupation with God, the one who's eternal. I was reading, I'll give you one more. Uh, uh, I was reading this halftime by Bob Bufford. Grab that book and read it if you could. He, he says he was in a place where he was feeling you know, like uh, midlife crisis or whatever. He was, in, he, he was in a time where he was feeling no what to do. And um, he, he recognizes that, listen, I need to get out from that. This is not, um, you know what, I forgot why I started to say that, but um, let's go back to the next one that I have, Joni Erickson. <laughs> Sorry about that. I, uh, but that, that's something that really spoke to me. Read that book and you know what the lesson that I want. <laughs> okay? That sounds good. All right. Okay. But the story that I want to conclude with is Joni Erickson. Tatum. We know about her. She had this accident where she was, she's a paraplegic. Uh, waist down, sorry, neck down, she can't move. It's only her head. She sings, she paints, she does everything, but it's only with her, with her head. And as she grew into a woman, because that accident was in her teens, as she grew into, a, uh, into being a woman, there comes into her life a person called Ken, who wants to marry her. Now, Ken wants to marry her not out of empathy, not as a caregiver, not because, you know, like, I want to take care of you forever, and that's, that's my aim in life or whatever, but they've fallen in love. So this is the time where 
Johnny Erickson Tata is just outside the door as it's about to open and she's going to go down that aisle on a motorized vehicle. And as she waits there, she realizes that she has run the, uh, the, the wheel over the wedding gown and there's a streak and there's a tear. And, the, and because she can't do anything with her hands, the, the, the flowers were on her lap and because of this, suddenly the flowers are strewn all over and just at that point, the door opens and it's time for her to roll down the aisle. And she says at that very moment, when she saw Ken standing there, she forget, forgets everything about the people and about what they would think and about her torn dress and about the strewn flowers. Only he mattered. And I pray to God that that would be a prayer, that only he matters, that only he matters. That we can say together, who can declare all his praise. Because in your heart of hearts, you know, for all that he means to us, we can never fully exhaust all the praises that he has blessed us with. In spiritual places, in Christ Jesus, it just goes on. Paul just gets into this ecstasy as he thinks about all the goodness and about the Lord Jesus Christ.